Facebook Engineering is designed to self-assemble. When an engineer joins Facebook, the engineer goes through boot camp, where they are exposed to multiple projects to find a good fit in terms of technical skills and personal preferences. Since there are so many different initiatives within the company at any given moment, a new hire can usually find something to work on through this exploration. As an engineer builds credibility within Facebook, opportunities to move to other projects or to become a manager will present themselves, allowing the engineer to move within the company as they mature and their interests change. The sense of autonomy and freedom to explore is one feature of Facebook engineering that distinguishes the company. Facebook is a flat, decentralized organization by nature. But there have been existential moments in Facebook's history where an executive mandate was required. During these existential situations, Facebook centralizes and becomes a more top-down environment. Facebook's most crucial inflection point to date was its shift to focusing on mobile computing. Even two years after the launch of the iPhone, it was not obvious that the world of consumer computing would change completely due to mobile devices. Facebook was becoming a dominant place where consumers navigated to on desktop, and Facebook engineering was focused on optimizing that desktop experience. As the impact of the iPhone became noticeable, Facebook found itself with a desktop web product in the middle of a platform shift away from the desktop. During this same time, Facebook was beginning to succeed with its advertising platform and was evaluating an initial public offering. Facebook leadership was able to recognize the importance of mobile computing in time to develop high-quality mobile applications, but there were numerous challenges. The Facebook desktop web app had been difficult enough to build due to the unprecedented data requirements and amount of interactivity. Mobile introduced the additional hurdles of limited bandwidth and distinct native operating systems in Android and iPhone. Facebook's early efforts to build a mobile application involved a cross-platform HTML5 solution. HTML5 had insufficient performance for Facebook's needs, and the company needed to develop native apps in order to deliver the desired performance. Facebook's ability to pivot to mobile is comparable to the classic story of Intel pivoting from a memory company to a microprocessor company. To succeed at mobile application development, Facebook had to shift its focus dramatically, reallocating engineering resources and acquiring small mobile companies in order to build up the domain expertise for mobile. As a side effect of this transition to mobile, Facebook developed an understanding of how dramatically software engineering was changed by the introduction of smartphones and the high bandwidth requirements of social networking. The challenges of this new paradigm led to the development of open-source tools such as GraphQL and React Native, which have allowed countless projects in the software world to build applications more easily. Jocelyn Goldfein was an engineering director at Facebook for four years, from 2010 to 2014. She currently works as an investor at Zeta Venture Partners. In her time at Facebook, Jocelyn saw the shift to mobile firsthand. In today's episode, she describes how Facebook management works and gives her perspective on the distinguishing characteristics of the Facebook organization as a whole. The Find Collabs Open has started. 
It is our second Find Collabs hackathon, and we're giving away $2,500 in prizes. The prizes will be awarded in categories such as machine learning, business planning, music, visual art, JavaScript. If those categories sound interesting to you, check out findcollabs.com open. With that, let's get on to today's episode. Codacy helps development teams of all sizes to automate their code quality by identifying issues through static code analysis, both in the cloud and on-premise. The Codacy product notifies users about security issues, code coverage, code duplication, and code complexity in every commit and pull request, directly from their current workflow. Codacy has been designed by developers to be easy to set up and use, and it's completely free for small teams up to four developers. And it's also completely free for open source projects. You can find out more and try out Codacy by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Codacy. That's C-O-D-A-C-Y. Codacy is a tool for static code analysis and issue identification. It will help you find security issues and code duplication, all these other issues that you can find through static code analysis. Check out softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Codacy, C-O-D-A-C-Y. Thanks to Codacy for being a sponsor. Jocelyn Goldfine, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. You are a former engineering director at Facebook. You're today a managing director at Zeta Venture Partners. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. You joined Facebook in 2010 as an engineering director. What was Facebook's process for senior recruiting at that time? Oh, it was entirely ad hoc. I think I had probably 16 interviews across. (laughs) I'm trying to think. I had lunch with the CTO, or I guess at that time, the VP of engineering of Facebook, uh, Mike Treffer, and and he persuaded me to start chatting with them. But it really was just like, well, why don't you have coffee with this guy? Oh, that coffee went well, have coffee with this other guy. And so I think it was uh, quite a few coffees before they and I were mutually comfortable to proceed to something like an on-site interview day where I actually came in and met four or five people, including Mark. And I think there may even have been a few follow-ups after that. I mean, Facebook was, I think, correctly, extremely protective of their culture and correctly aware that bringing in leaders, that senior leaders have the ability to to shape and to warp your culture. And if you're going to bring someone in at a senior level, you'd better be really, really sure about the fit. And for the most part, Facebook didn't hire managers from the outside. The, I'd say 90% of the management team was homegrown. They, they were actually more prone to hiring senior leadership because it would just take it from the outside rather than frontline managers because it would just take too long to develop senior leadership internally. And I think that Facebook did benefit from some cross-pollination of ideas from other places, which I think, but we were kind of the one vector for doing that. What were the products that you were working on when you joined? When I first joined, I was in boot camp, like every other new engineering hire at Facebook. So I spent my first six weeks, uh, you know, fixing bugs, writing small features, um, pushed code to the site in, uh, I think, my first week or maybe the, the Monday of my second week. I can't remember. And um, it, But my first teams outside of boot camp were, I want to say, search. 
was the very first project. And then I quickly picked up Newsfeed. And I would say that my first major product milestone at Facebook was came about a year in when we shipped the, the what will be remembered about that release is that it was the machine learning ranker for the newsfeed. This would be in the fall of 2011. But it was also a total UX rewrite. It was, we completely revamped the homepage of the most visited URL on the planet. So that took a little bit of hubris. It was, uh, it was <laughs> especially for me as a, a brand new to the company. So that was an exciting project. Not well received by the user base, of course. It wasn't the Facebook newsfeed or the ranking, the new ranking system. Oh, because they moved from chronological. The feed, I think, originally shipped in two thousand seven or eight. Before my time at Facebook, I was not the one of the newsfeed, and was universally reviled. I mean, I think like you know, a million people joined a protest movement against the newsfeed in the first place. <laughs> But eventually folks came around and came to love it. When you're adding so many users, you know, the ones who joined post-newsfeed, you know, for them, that's what Facebook was. By 20, when we shipped the update in 2011, if your listeners have been Facebook members for long enough, they may recall that the homepage used to have two tabs, top news and most recent. So most recent was a chronological tab. Top news was a ranked version of the feed that tried to put the most important posts first, but the importance was determined by essentially a rules-based algorithm. It wasn't machine-learned at all. And so we both replaced the hand-tuned rules-based algorithm with a machine-learned ranker, and we more or less did away with the most recent, with the chronological version. We actually tried in a number of ways to weave chronology in with the ranker, but it was a little bit subtle and not obvious. In the end, we did also add a very a somewhat hidden way to reorder your feed chronologically. I think that's gone now. But we ran test after test after test, and the chronological feed is, does not perform. And it, it's sort of logical when you consider human nature, which is that humans give a disproportionate amount of time to the top 10 items in their feed. Those are disproportionately more likely to be seen than any other posts. And of the top 10, a disproportionate amount of that time like half of it goes to the very first post, the number one spot. So those 10 spots are gold if you want to drive reach or distribution or engagement. And if you, by the way, if you want to create value for the people reading their feed. And so there is no world in which putting a story of random quality into the top spot is better than putting your best guess at the best story into the top spot and into the top 10 spots. And so even an imperfect ranker is infinitely better than random quality, which is what chronological amounts to. And, you know, I meet lots of, you know, my own friends and family will tell me confidently, oh, I'm sure that's true for the average Facebook user, but I read my entire feed and I require it to be in chronological order and I would read more stories and I would engage more and I would give more clicks, likes and comments to my friends if I had a chronologically ordered feed. And all I can tell them is that their human perception is wrong. (laughs) Because we know who the people are who like to read chronologically. They're the ones who bothered to go find the hidden widget and reorder their feed. And we run test after test after test on them, and they engage more with their feed when it's ranked. So working at Facebook was full of really sort of tough and interesting product decisions, and it's the first time I've worked on a product that is so heavily instrumented and so clearly understands the way that people using the software are using it. 
And as a result of that insight, what you find is that how people think they use Facebook and how they actually use Facebook are greatly at odds. What reflections do you have about building a feed? Because now today we have feeds in Twitter, Quora, my podcasts player, LinkedIn. Any broad macro reflections on how to architect a good feed? One of the big ones is like that disproportionate amount of attention goes to the top 10 slots. And so sort of rationing or, or, or using those slots wisely is one of the most important things to do. There are a lot of distributed systems problems that come with building a feed. And it really matters and it will really vary whether you have a world more like Facebook's, which is relatively more peer-to-peer. It is, it is relatively the case that you have, you know, at least half your audience posting and being consumed by a sort of a finite, by a relatively small audience versus I think an environment like Twitter where you have a much smaller number of people, where it's much more asymmetrical. You have a smaller number of tweeters who have immense followings. And Facebook has some of both, of course, because of pages and celebrities. And so the approach you take, there's not one right architecture for a feed. It really depends on the ratio between publishers and consumers. Facebook was based on the LAMP stack. It's a highly scaled iteration of the LAMP stack. Tell me what the downstream ramifications of that have been over the course of Facebook's history. I think I have, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, actually. I joined Facebook from not from Google, which was also more or less a LAMP stack, but from VMware, which was you know not just writing native software, <laughs> was writing operating systems. And there were many things that Facebook engineers just took for granted in their release cycle that were, to me, you know, the equivalent of defying laws of physics, you know, of of faster than light travel. And one of the biggest ones is that the cost of a release shrinks nearly to zero. And I think that companies that migrated, companies like Microsoft, that sort of started life in the native software era and migrated to the web era, never fully shook off the culture of developing for native. And that is a culture which, artic- which values an engineer, which says the definition of a good engineer is one who can call his shot and make it. One who can estimate precisely and who can deliver pr- predictably. Who says when something will be done and, and does it. Who figures out not just what it'll take to code it up, but what it will take to sort of integrate it, to fix all the bugs, who anticipates all the things that could go wrong. And the reason that's so critically important in a native software world is that the cost of a release is really high. You've got to test across a broad matrix, You've got to integrate with every other piece of, actually, you've got to integrate either way. It's really the test matrix, and then it's the delivery of the software, both of which come from the fact that at the end of the day, the way you deliver your software is to create this binary, to print CDs with the binary on it, or maybe find post the binary to the web somewhere where it can be downloaded, but to send those off into the world where you don't control where your end users, when and how and where they install it. And so shipping a point release, a hotfix, is incredibly costly, not just to you because you've got to go through that whole heavy process again, but to your customer base who now has to accept an upgrade and find time to test the upgrade themselves and on and on. And so getting the release right the first time is nailing the landing, sticking the landing, is incredibly important in the native world. It just doesn't matter at all in the web. First of all, there's no test matrix because your software is only ever going to run in an environment that you control, which is completely homogenous, whether that's you know, a zillion VMs, whether that's containers, whether that's the cloud. 
Second of all, you have full control over the deployment environment, so you can ship whenever you want to. And Facebook did. When I arrived, Facebook shipped every day. When I departed, they shipped twice a day. So, you know, you didn't even have to wait for a hotfix vehicle if you screwed something up. You could just port the, port the fix and, and, and ship it. When the cost of releasing goes to zero, and I will say that Facebook also had another advantage going for it, which is that it's essentially free software. And so, you know, small glitches and bugs have, like if Facebook's down for, you know, five minutes, it's just, they lose some advertising revenue in that five minutes, but it's just not the end of the world for their users. Like they're not going to, customers aren't going to abandon them. Users aren't going to abandon them over a five minute outage. And so between the two, they can accept far more risk. And that means they can go much, much faster and they can have a software lifecycle that is optimized for speed, not for predictability. And I meet startup CEOs all the time who ask me, well, how can I make sure my engineering team hits their deadlines? And I say, is that what you want? Like, how, how can I make sure that, that, you know, my engineering team is productive? And to them, that means hitting deadlines. And I actually think it's the opposite. I think that predictability comes at the expense of productivity. I think they are a literal time-space trade-off. And what I saw at Facebook was software ship unreasonably much faster than I could have imagined at VMware. And some of it was that you didn't have a test matrix. You tried something, and if it worked in your dev environment, it pretty much worked in production 99% of the time. But it was also the case that not having to think about hitting that release cycle gave you so much more flexibility. You could be on the balls of your feet. You could say, oh, the photos team needs help from newsfeed team this week. Sure, I'm going to send an engineer to help them because I'm not going to miss like my huge release date in the sky if I have to reshuffle tasks and reprioritize. And just that ability to move people around very fungibly to unblock each other turns out to be a huge turbo button for the entire engineering organization. We don't realize how much overhead we're sacrificing to people feeling adherence to deadline pressure that doesn't allow them to reprioritize on the fly and doesn't allow them to help each other out and unblock each other. And I think it's actually tragic how many web stack companies, lamp stack companies are out there who are still slavishly, you know, adhering to the deadline, which is just this legacy, these shackles that come to them from the bad old native days. They don't have that constraint, but they're still <laughs> giving themselves the, you know, and there's other reasons to have deadlines. If you are a B2B company and not a consumer company, then you may have revenue recognition issues that require you to ship features to a customer when you said that you would. But, you know, by and large, the features will come faster if you have a good iterative process and not if you have a deadline-driven process. The other nuance here is feedback loops. Everybody knows you should integrate early and often, that when your code touches other people's code, you learn new things, but also when other people see your code and experience it and use it, you learn new things and you fix it. And so if you go a year between releases, <laughs> you will get all this feedback from the market that like, you can't adopt and recover from in time to get it into your next release. If you go a month between releases, is actually still really slow to get feedback loops. So Facebook, more than any other company I've seen, has embraced this idea of real-time feedback to what you're building. So the way Facebook pursues designing a product is incredibly iterative. Put together a first prototype quickly, we ship it, well, first of all, it's in the production code base. Facebook only has one branch. We use feature flags to, so everything's running. <laughs> in production all the time, but we use feature flags to control who sees it. 
which means that your code is always integrated with everybody else's code. But you're also getting immediate feedback, first perhaps just from the engineer, the development team itself, that is building the feature, but then maybe you open it up to other Facebook employees, then maybe you open it up to you know a small, perhaps you need feedback from real users, so maybe you turn it on to sort of 0.05% of users and see how it gets used. Or perhaps it's only useful, perhaps it's a feature that involves connections between people who are both friends, so you don't want to pick a random 0.05%, so you pick a small English-speaking country like New Zealand and you turn your feature on there and see how it's used and how it affects the overall metrics. And this enables Facebook to have real-time feedback on every product that they're developing as they're developing it, or did between 2010 and 2014. I can't speak for the Facebook of today. Which in turn enabled us, and we had no deadline pressure around our necks. And those, in t- those put together allowed us to be incredibly agile. They allowed us to always reserve the right to wake up smarter and make a better decision tomorrow. <laughs> and one that was based on real actual usage. And so we didn't commit. I think where a lot of product teams get in trouble is with sunk cost. You know, we commit all this time and energy and effort making our perfect, beautiful product. And then by the time we actually get feedback on it, we're so committed. We're psychologically committed because we worked for months on it. And we've also got this immense code base that's really hard to change. And so by being really minimal in our approach at Facebook, the concrete was still wet until incredibly late in the game. It took us a year to ship the new newsfeed, but that amounted to, I would say, about six or seven four-week cycles where week one was a prototype, week two was testing it on Facebook people, week three was getting some form of external usage data, whether that was just pumping real production data through it or actually showing it to production users. You know, week four was trying to polish and iterate on what we learned. And at the end of week four, we decided to prune that branch and start over. And so it took us six or seven tries to get to what we thought was the right design. We, we, in that way, spent about four weeks each evaluating six or seven designs, landed on one that we thought was best, and then spent, I would say, three or four months really hardening it, scaling it, making it ready for production usage. And running along that same time horizon, the machine learning team was working in the background to really get the, the ranker built. And that was much more of like a six to nine month end-to-end effort, all focused on, on one area. And those came together at the end, and we were able to ship them around the time of F8, Facebook's big conference. And we did have some deadline pressure towards the end, and that was to sync up with the release of OpenGraph. So that combination of, you know, being LAMP native let Facebook really jettison what I would call some sacred cows for most software engineering organizations. The deadline and, you know, and and the idea that you get feedback at the end. And I've, I've never seen another organization that incorporates feedback along the way like Facebook. The company can turn on a dime. And a lot of it is enabled by the architecture. A lot of it is enabled by the release process. I do think some of it is enabled just by culture and personality of the early of the early team. I think that, you know, Mark has a lot of gifts, but I think one of his superpowers is to really admit that he was wrong and not to like stick to an old idea that turned out not to work. I think as humans, we all have this blind spot. You know, once we've stood up and, you know, put our name on something and said, you know, and said some X is true, it becomes really, really hard for us to ever retract that message or contradict ourselves or admit that we were wrong and it's really why. I don't like the vindictiveness of the way that the Facebook story is being told right now. Innovation, people take wrong turns or take dubious turns and that's how you get progress. 
Something I wrote about innovation a little just right after I left Facebook was, look, innovative ideas by definition always look wrong. They always look crazy. Because if it looked like a good idea, it would be an obvious idea, right? By definition, it would not be innovative. So what makes it innovative is either people think it's not possible or they think it's a bad idea or they think it's, you know, like it, it, it would be bad for the world or they think that it, it can't work, that it's too risky, that it would have too many, basically either it's impossible or it has too many bad side effects to be worth trying. And otherwise someone would have done it. Otherwise it would be like, well, yes, of course we would do that. So it's really hard to tell the two apart at the beginning. I don't think there's anybody who can reliably distinguish good innovative ideas from, from bad ideas. I think you just have to try them and see what works. And within maybe a values framework of some things we just don't try. And I think that to innovate, you must be willing to embrace the risk of being wrong. And you must be willing to embrace the risk of failing. Otherwise, innovation doesn't happen. And so I do think that Facebook's been an incredibly innovative company, in part because its architecture, its process, and its engineering value system enabled it to take risk. And not just embraced risk, but encouraged everybody to take a lot of risk. And I do think that that, that was one of Mark's great gifts as an entrepreneur. It's one of the things that I think makes him one of the great entrepreneurs of all time. When you take a lot of risks, you can get a lot of things wrong. <laughs> and Facebook's genius is not that it's right any more than anybody else. It's that it tries experiments at a higher velocity than anybody else, and they and they purge the ones that don't work faster than anybody else. And it's no surprise, really, that in the end, the deep-seated challenges for the company have been problems that don't show up immediately, problems where the downsides were incredibly lagging indicators. You know, we're finding out in 2018 about a problem that happened in 2011. So Facebook's phenomenal at optimizing, at making curves go up and to the right, at, at improving on anything you can measure. I think that does give them a little bit of a blind spot about evaluating and optimizing for things that cannot be measured, like trust or data privacy, which is not to say that the company doesn't value those things. I think they do incredibly deeply. It's just that most of the tools in their toolkit don't solve those problems. They've got to build some new tools now. When a rider calls a car using a ride-sharing service, there are hundreds of back-end services involved in fulfilling that request. Distributed tracing allows the developers at the ride-sharing company to see how requests travel through all the stages of the network, from the front-end layer to the application middleware to the back-end core data services Distributed tracing can be used to understand how long a complex request is taking at each of these stages, so that developers can debug their complex application and improve performance issues. Lightstep is a company built around distributed tracing and modern observability. Lightstep answers questions and diagnoses anomalies in mobile applications, monoliths, and microservices. At lightstep.com sedaily, you can get started with Lightstep Tracing and get a free t-shirt. This comfortable, well-fitting t-shirt says, Distributed Tracing is fun, which is a quote that you may find yourself saying once you are improving the latency of your multi-service requests. Lightstep allows you to analyze every transaction that your users engage in. You can measure performance where it matters 
and you can find the root cause of your problems. Lightstep was founded by Ben Sigelman, who was a previous guest on Software Engineering Daily. In that show, he talked about his early development of distributed tracing at Google. I recommend going back and giving that episode a listen if you haven't heard it. And if you want to try distributed tracing for free, you can use Lightstep and get a free t-shirt. Go to lightstep.com slash sedaily. Companies such as Lyft, Twilio, and GitHub all use Lightstep to observe their systems and improve their product quality. Thanks to Lightstep for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily, and you can support the show by going to lightstep.com slash sedaily. I want to come back to what you said about Facebook's ability to turn on a dime, because I think this was exemplified when you were leading the mobile team, or the transition to mobile team, I should say. Now this, so for all of Facebook's ability to experiment and explore lateral movements, this was a time where Facebook really had a necessity put against it. You need to move to mobile. And it was fortunate that the leadership inside the company saw that this was important and you were heavily responsible for leading that effort. Tell me about the strategic inflection point of moving Facebook onto mobile. I would say the years I was at Facebook from 2010 to 2014 were the transition to mobile years. And while Facebook was good at turning on a dime for product changes or even strategic decisions, the mobile turn was more like, I don't know, turning on a a truckload of dimes. Um, I think it took us all of those four years. I would say in 2010, when I first got there, the resources allocated to mobile were just like meager. (laughs) And everybody could see that mobile was sort of rising, but it was still a small percentage of the whole. Um, And it might help here to explain a little bit of Facebook's organization because that, I think, shows a little bit of how decisions were getting made. So there was a big infrastructure organization of people sort of building back-end services and operating the data centers. There was a big product organization that was divided into many pretty autonomous units. So Newsfeed was its own autonomous unit. Search was its own autonomous unit. Messaging was its own autonomous unit. Groups had just been created and was its own autonomous unit. And so there was a lot of latitude for product teams to really own their own metrics and own their own endpoints and do whatever they wanted and achieve great results. And that was one of the things that made metrics go up into the right really fast was lack of interdependencies between groups. There weren't lots of layers of authority and there weren't lots of people who would say to the newsfeed team, no, you can't do that. Mobile was one little product team and it didn't have a whole lot of resources. And it was, and basically they spent all their time sort of looking at what was being built by these product teams for the web and sort of desperately trying to port it all over to mobile as fast as they could. At least that was the story on iOS and I won't tell you about Android, it's too embarrassing. So um, somewhere between 2010 and 2011, it became obvious that mobile was really important. I picked up the photos team in 2011, and it was really clear in 2011 that mobile was becoming a very important platform for photos because all of a sudden you weren't getting, you know, big album uploads from like people take their digital cameras on trips, take a ton of photos, and then you'd get this huge album upload with hundreds of photos from that trip, right? So that used to be how photos got on Facebook. And now, like, you're wandering around, and the camera device is the device that's running Facebook, and so you're getting a lot more one-off photo posts. I take a picture, I post it. Like, we started to see that emerge. And so the photos team knew that mobile was an important platform 
And, you know, sort of maybe before it was generally obvious to other product teams as a whole. But it was becoming more and more clear. And I think towards the end of 2011, um, we're like, okay, we got to do something about mobile. Well, we want to take mobile seriously, but, you know, we've got all these engineers. We've got all this investment in PHP. We want to go really fast. We don't want to have three duplicate code bases. So we're just going to get bet big time on HTML5. And what we did was we chose what would work really well for Facebook, what we knew how to do. And we knew that the LAMP stack gave us all these superpowers that we just talked about, the ability to go fast, the ability to iterate quickly in real time. And so that was our first try. And, you know, it was the right decision for Facebook's development productivity and release process. But it turned out that despite all that, in 2011, HTML5 could not meet what people using Facebook wanted, which was the performance and snappiness of the interface as well as you know, some key features like integration with the camera and SMS and, and other sensors that, that you couldn't get from HTML. So we made the very difficult decision in 2012 that we would scratch that. And that was probably, I don't know, a six to nine month wrong turn. So that was our, our first pivot to mobile was the HTML5. Second pivot to mobile was acknowledging, okay, we've got to go native. By then we had finally hired a few more people. And, and I should say the HTML5 decision was also really rational when you considered that we had something like three or 400 engineers that could do PHP and like five engineers that could do iOS and like two that could do Android. Okay. So um, by 2012, we've hired more people who know native, and we're going on a hiring spree and an aqua hiring spree to get more. And so now we're sort of closer to somewhere, something like 20 people who know native. And we take them all, and we put them in a war room, and we say, you're going to go make amazing native Facebook apps, apps, you know, go. And they did. They sprinted. They were heroic. And they built really good Apple and Android native applications. But it should be said, most of the people working on those apps were new to Facebook. We had hired them from companies like Mozilla, from companies like Apple, where they had experience developing native. And the kind of core, you know, Facebook product engineers who know PHP first and foremost and, and JavaScript, you know, that crew was largely sitting outside the war room, you know, working on the web, but kind of watching as, you know, if you identify as part of the newsfeed team, you're not identifying as part of the web team. You're, you define your success by, you know, how many clicks, likes, and comments are driven by the feed today. You know, what are, what are my daily usage of newsfeed? Or in the photos team, you're sitting there trying to maximize metrics like participation rate, how many people upload a photo, how many photos get uploaded. And so you're sitting there in 2012 watching mobile be a larger and larger proportion of the metrics that you live and die on. But you just ha you have to go knock on the war room door and ask nicely <laughs> to get a feature on those platforms. So there was also a lot of demand for to train up more mobile engineers so they wouldn't be as much of a bottleneck. But the product teams all had the appetite now to contribute to the mobile apps the way they had not in 2010. So this brings us, so, so we have these kind of mobile native apps that are shipping in, I think probably, yeah, it was maybe late 2011, early 2012. And they ship, we open up the war room, we create a mobile engineering team, you know, we start getting more and more, you know, we try to train every product engineer at Facebook in doing mobile, we create these two-week classes and we, of course, continue trying to hire every mobile engineer we can get our hands on. We made massive alterations to how we recruit and interview, all with the intention of, of being mobile first. So that, I would say, is the second big pivot to mobile. And it worked, and it produced good apps. 
Where it did not work was, okay, now what? We're out of the war room. These product teams desperately want to control their destiny. It is totally visible from space to them now that their future is mobile because they can't hit their product-specific metrics because mobile is just, just this rising tide that is driving every metric that matters. And they are running into the mobile team as kind of a gatekeeper. Now, remember how I said the Facebook way of delivering software was enabled by the LAMP architecture and by the Facebook process and by this idea that the cost of a release is zero? So I think that a lot of Facebook engineers grew up with that. You know, they only ever worked at Facebook or maybe they worked at Google for a year or two and then were at Facebook. And so there's a lot of sort of Facebook exceptionalism. We do it this way because we're Facebook, because we're bold, because we embrace risk. I think there was not a lot of awareness of, oh, we can do this because we're a LAMP stack and not a native stack. I don't think that was a widely understood feeling amongst those product teams. Meanwhile, these mobile engineers had been through Facebook bootcamp, but they had gone, they'd been tossed straight into the mobile war room. They'd never worked on anything at Facebook but the native app. And they came from places like Apple. <laughs> that has, you know, if you can imagine a diametrically opposite engineering culture and software delivery lifecycle, it's Apple, <laughs> right? They're still in the waterfall world. They, they, they have operating system DNA. They have hardware DNA. Proudly in the waterfall world. Yes. And even, you know, coming from something like Mozilla, like, or you know, any other sort of, they, they came from a native development background. And so they came with a values system that was, you call your shot, you design it and you perfect the design and then you build it and then you test it. And then you have things like UI freeze and feature freeze and no, you, and then you have a release branch where all you're doing is closing bugs and no, you can't port your feature changing into the release branch just because you got like your A-B test test results came back and told you that the feature should be different. Of course you can't do that. So they're running these eight-week release cycles. And so the product teams are desperately trying to contribute code and develop features for these native apps the way they had always done it for web. Because we've taken a PHP engineer, but, but more importantly, a Facebook product engineer who's grown up with the Facebook release lifecycle and teaching that engineer Objective-C and iOS libraries or Java and Android frameworks doesn't actually unteach all the all the release process change. And we've said, hey, we have this release process now. You have to jump through all these hoops that really just felt like bureaucracy to those Facebook guys, right? Like, and and magically we'll get good native apps out of this. So when I arrived at the helm of the mobile engineering team, these two groups were at daggers drawn. You had the mobile engineering team that kind of identified themselves as the gatekeepers against the barbarian hordes. Yes, the Facebook product engineers were the barbarian hordes who are making work for them, who are, are really sloppy and slapdash and who are creating lots of bugs. And, you know, another thing that's different about a native app versus an endpoint is, you know, I mentioned that Newsfeed could have a lot of autonomy because we own our own endpoint. Like if we screw it up, we've just hurt ourselves, right? Or, or you know, the chat people can take all kinds of risks with chat. They haven't harmed Newsfeed if they mess up chat on the web. But in native, we're all one payload. And so another way that risk compounds is like, well, if you introduce a crashing bug, like that crashes the app for everybody. So there were so many reasons why you had to be far more risk averse that were fundamentally technological, not cultural, but it was seen as a cultural schism. So, you know, both sides are sort of sitting there viewing the other side as having bad values, bad taste, and posing like an existential threat to the company even, right? Like you people want to ship horrible software and you people want to be like bureaucrats and stop us from iterating and imagine remember I told you the 
the story about the newsfeed development process and how it was six or seven, like to evaluate any given design idea, you evaluated it in kind of these one-week cycles. Those one-week cycles were driven, of course, by the main branch getting shipped every Tuesday. So, and you would do like four of these one-week cycles to fully explore an idea, and then you might do four or five of those ideas to land on the right idea. So now imagine that your fundamental cycle time unit to get feedback on an idea, to be able to ship an A-B test, for example, is not one week, but eight weeks. Because that's how long the mobile app, I mean, we were pipelining them so that a new release went to the app store every four weeks. But that just means, you know, if I ship something on day zero, by the time I get some feedback, I'm already after the feature freeze cutoff. I'm already on the release branch for the release that's four weeks away. So I'm supposed to make changes on main that are going to ship eight weeks away. So to take the fundamental unit of product iteration from one week to eight weeks blows up my one year <laughs> project to an eight year project. I mean, it's just unthinkable. Like, you know, the product teams are sitting here looking at the mobile teams and they're just sort of baffled. It's like, no, you can't do software that way. What are you talking about? And, and the other guys are like, no, you can't do software that way. What are you talking about? And somewhat surprisingly to me, I looked around and realized that I was one of the only engineering directors at Facebook that actually knew what both sides meant. Like they were just talking past each other because they came from these very different backgrounds. And if you looked at the Facebook engineering director ranks, there was the guy who was leading the mobile charge was someone who had come to Facebook and had been working from native software and had, there were two, one had come from Mozilla, one had come from a startup, but they both had only done native at Facebook. If you went and looked on the product side, almost everybody had a background like, you know, if they'd worked somewhere other than Facebook, it was like Google or it was another Lampstack company. There were one or two that had a year or two at Microsoft, you know, long, long ago when they were engineers and not managers. And I was the only one who had run software releases, both for a native software company, VMware, and for Facebook. <laughs> product team. And I think like me and maybe Shrep could say that. <laughs> maybe Jay Parikh, the head of the infrastructure org, but sitting in infrastructure, he was ill positioned. Actually, he had never done a product release at Facebook. So I was somewhat uniquely in position, although I had not worked with mobile tech before to understand native. And this was really a process issue as much or more than it was a technology issue. But it was also a culture and an organizational design issue. And so I stepped in to helm the mobile engineering team, and it, was the, it became immediately clear to me when I went to talk to my peers from the product organization how frustrated and stymied they felt working with the mobile organization. But it was immediately clear, talking to my new teammates in mobile, what a bunker mentality they had, like how much they felt under siege from all the product teams trying to force changes in to the mobile apps while the mobile team was held responsible for the quality of the mobile app. The product teams were only held responsible for their product metrics. The mobile team was, was held responsible for things like, you know, the app store rating of the app or the crashes and performance of the app. So it was like a terrible misalignment of goals along with everything else. So my stint at the helm of mobile, I consider the third and final pivot to mobile. And I said when I took this job, okay, we've been talking for two years about being mobile first. And I took the job in early 2012. We've been talking for two years about being mobile first. But guess what? A mobile first company does not have a mobile team. Facebook never had a web team. We had a newsfeed team. We had a messenger team. Like web was such a baked in assumption that every product team 
did web. And so if we are truly mobile first and every product, then every product team is a mobile team. And yeah, you can have a, a framework team, a platform team that supports the product teams. We had that on web. But it's not a mobile team. It's just like an infrastructure team, a product infrastructure team. And so I took the job knowing that my goal, if I was successful, would be to marry Facebook release process and mobile and native release process. In other words, to evolve a new and third kind of process that was not trying to take Apple process and somehow make it work for Facebook. Because Facebook really is different than Apple. We're not shipping hardware. We are going to have another release coming in four weeks, or actually under my, on my watch we made it two weeks, which really eased a lot of pressures too. But it is also the case that Facebook can't just ship native software the way they ship Lampstack. Like you just can't. You cannot ship twice a day. <laughs> you cannot let the messenger team crash the app and blow up newsfeed. And so we had to evolve something out of the merger of these two sets of ideas. Um, and we also needed a heck of a lot more automation and tooling to make it less painful. So if we had to have a QA cycle on native, which like Facebook on the website, they didn't have QA. There was no QA organization. There was no such thing as a, as a QA cycle. There was no QA gatekeeper or decision maker. Like the developers were responsible for fixing bugs just like, and discovering bugs just like writing code. And you discovered bugs by either your coworkers reporting them to you or watching the metrics. And if, you know, if a metric plummeted, you realized you had a bug. You Which know? is a stark difference than the avalanche of unit tests and integration tests that were often taught in other places. Well, F Facebook did have a lot of testing automation. I mean, developers were responsible for doing that. And there was a, a strong sort of testing religion. And I think that you get that when, but unit testing religion, not manual testing. And that's what you get when you ask developers to own test instead of QA. So I don't want to say that, that Facebook wanted to ship a lot of bugs. They had a lot of mechanisms and actually really great and wonderful tooling on the website to find and prevent bugs. But the idea of a test matrix of needing to, to exercise the same functionality on many different platforms, like on the three versions of iOS and the five versions of phone and the God help us, infinite flavors of Android and Android devices. Like that was completely new to Facebook. Like that was a thing that had to be accommodated. The ideas of feature freeze and, and sort of letting the code base take only bug fixes for a little while before you, like that was needed to be accommodated. And, and the idea that, that you'd have to go to a release team for approval to cross port code as opposed to just moving it into the branch. Like, you know, all those things needed to be accommodated for something like native where a release is not happening every day. It's happening every two weeks, maybe every four weeks. And then the other big change that had to be made was mobile could not be the only one responsible for quality. In fact, we already had, and this just speaks to the fact that the, the mobile team was new to Facebook. They didn't understand what tools Facebook already had that were authentically Facebook-y to solve these kinds of problems. But on the website, all products teams signed up to performance goals for how fast their pages would load. They signed up to reliability goals for how frequently their pages would crash or would not crash. And they signed up to code quality goals and efficiency goals on you know, how, how heavy your feature weight was on, on the servers. So how, you know, how many new servers do we have to buy to run your feature? And they were doing that. You could distribute responsibility for quality. We had a lot of mechanisms and, and buy-in for doing things like that. The mobile team you know, just had this bunker mentality that the product teams didn't care about quality and would not accept and didn't accept responsibility for mobile quality, but they hadn't really tried to get them to and to accept responsibility for quality. So I 
walked around all the product teams and said, okay, you know how you have a performance and a reliability goal for web? Well, I'm giving you them for the apps. And they're like, really? Oh, well, yeah, I guess that does make sense. I mean, there was not any pushback. It was just, they'd not been asked. And so, you know, I would like to say there was a single silver bullet that enabled the pivot to mobile, but it was more like a hail of lead bullets. <laughs> it was a lot of lead bullets. It was getting enough engineers who were trained that each product team had competent mobile engineers on their bench and, and not incompetent, you know, half-trained engineers. It was getting enough tooling and frameworks so that we could automate a lot of the testing. It was getting the release cycle time down from, from eight weeks to four weeks. It was actually one thing that really helped was transfers, like transferring people from product teams into the mobile engineering team to learn the right ways to do things. But transferring people from the mobile teams into the product teams really reduced the us and them mentality because it's sort of like, you know, do you trust the messenger team? No, I don't trust them at all. They're barbarians. Well, do you trust Ben? Well, actually, I trust Ben a lot. He used to sit next to me. Okay, well, Ben sits in the messenger team now. So when you have a problem with the messenger team, you know, instead of hunkering down and saying how awful they are or, you know, trying to escalate to a third party, like, why don't you go talk to Ben? Oh, I'll do that. You know, no, none of these changes is, is going to sound... Or, or, or another thing we instituted was a countdown process. So one of the goals that felt really difficult to achieve was how do we improve the app store ratings of these applications because they were low. And, you know, and, and there was a lot of voodoo. Everybody had their favorite pet bug that they thought was driving low ratings. And we actually borrowed a data scientist and scraped all the text of all the reviews because Apple doesn't give you an API to get the review text. It's terrible. So we had to scrape it and then just run some NLP clustering on it and actually find a, a quantifiable way to prioritize what are the top 10 issues driving low ratings. Well, lo and behold, the, you know, the first two are just what you think. The app is slow and the app is crashing. <laughs> And those are actually really good ones because it's really easy, not easy, but we had a big effort to measure performance and to measure crashes. And those could be attributed and assigned to product teams because you know, like the page that was loading slowly was the newsfeed team or we can instrument the warm start and cold start time and figure out whose code is contributing to it. So we could actually hand out performance goals to every product team and we could hand out like, oh, like frequency of crashes. We're getting all these crash logs. We can assign those to product teams to fix. And yeah, there's going to be some scary, ambiguous ones, and those the mobile engineering team will keep. But then, you know, ones you would never imagine, the number four in 2012, the f maybe 2013, the fourth largest complaint about the Facebook application was Candy Crush won't connect to Facebook. Oh, no. <laughs> and the reaction from everyone was like, well, that's not our bug. I'm like, yes, but getting a four-star app is our goal. <laughs> and this is the fourth largest bucket of complaints, so let's go fix this. And lo and behold, we have a platform team who works with third-party developers. And lo and behold, you know, they say it's a Zynga bug, not a Facebook bug. Fine. My guess is we have enough leverage with Zynga that we can call them and get them to fix their bugs. Yeah. And we can collaborate on this. And, lo and, and so lo and behold, we start getting in motion. And, oh, actually, there are some Zynga bugs and there's a Facebook bugger, too. Of course. <laughs> and fine. And so, you know, and boom, we can make a huge cluster of pain for our users. Just Wonderful. go away. <laughs> and it was nothing the mobile engineering team could ever have done a darn thing about. So, you know, because it, it's all back-end server code owned by the platform team. Android photos not loading was another huge one. That, like, just, so just being able to shed insight onto what caused user pain 
actually enabled us to build these great cross-team collaborations to go solve those problems. And while these teams had a lot of differences and culture clash about what it means to be a good engineer or a, a good citizen of Facebook, one thing 100% of us agreed on, the real common ground was we wanted to make these applications great for the people who use them, for the Facebook community. And that drove and motivated everyone. And so these folks who said, oh, I can never collaborate, you know, it was like trying to get bipartisan legislation through, right? It's like the one thing Democrats and Republicans can agree on is job creation. So the one thing mobile and, and, and product engineers could agree on was, let's do right by the Facebook community. So that really was the bridge. And in the end of my, the end of my tenure running the mobile engineering team was I declared success and I reorged the mobile engineering team out of existence. So we sent bunches of mobile engineering teams to all the different product teams and we kept a core of it and said, great, you're now a mobile infrastructure team. Your job is to create frameworks and to in performance tooling and, you know, quality tooling and to operate this release process but we're not going to own features or functionality. It's, it's, if the features and functionality are going to be owned within a team that lives and dies by the metrics of those features and that is integrated end-to-end, that owns the front-end and the back-end and the web front-end. And that was the third and final and successful pivot to mobile. Only took four years. FindCollabs is a tool for managing hackathons and innovation within your company. FindCollabs allows anyone within the company to create new ideas and build momentum around a new initiative. FindCollabs allows your smartest, most driven employees to build projects organically. If your company is looking for new ideas and innovations, check out FindCollabs. It's free and it was started by me. It's something I genuinely believe in, and if you have any ideas or complaints or criticisms of FindCollabs, you can always email me, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. FindCollabs lets people within your company create new ideas. Whether you want to run a hackathon and generate new ideas, or you want a long-term system to manage innovation within your company, check out FindCollabs at findcollabs.com. With the mobile store you just told, there were a bunch of byproduct effects from fundamental strategic pivot that led to, I think, some cultural changes, some engineering org changes in the company. But you also were responsible for, for helping with changes to boot camp, changes to recruiting. Did you Was there a point at which you changed to like macro-level org changes, or were you always working on a product team and, and then simultaneously helping with org changes, like stuff to recruiting and stuff to boot camp? Recruiting and boot camp were things I did throughout my four years at Facebook. I mean, I think all Facebook managers... I don't know. I just viewed it as a communitarian. I should be running my org, but I should also be doing things that benefit the entire organization. And I think that's one reason why the CTO viewed me as a key lieutenant. There was a period of about 10 months when I stepped away from, uh, this was in 2011, 2012, when I stepped away from running a product team and I focused exclusively on hiring, onboarding, and actually... (laughs) This was another turnaround. <laughs> actually, my whole tenure at Facebook was turnarounds. I think some people at Facebook would actually 
say this one was even more important than mobile. I, I took over the tech recruiting team for a year. We had them report into engineering for a year. I gave them back when I was done. They'd never met a recruiting goal. We had gargantuan engineering hiring goals, and, and the goals kept doubling because we, that was the rate we were growing at. And so I think, you know, the year in, I can't remember what the miss was at the end of 2010. But at the end of 2011, they were supposed to have hired 300 engineers, and they hired 250. And then we had told them the goal for 2012 was going to be 600 engineers, twice as many as the 300 that they had missed. And so they were, you know, trying to ramp up and hire more recruiters and, like, sweating really hard. And then we decided to IPO in 2012. And we both felt that that would give us more cash to hire more engineers, but we also were worried that you know, people who were finally liquid, that there could be a lot of attrition, like the people could just make so much money, they could just retire and that we couldn't, that we had to increase our assumptions about how many people would need to be replaced. And so we came back to them in like December and said, oh, actually your hiring target for 2012, remember we told you it was 600, it's really a thousand. And recruiting's reaction was kind of like, you know, the prisoner on death row being asked what they wanted for their last meal. I mean, they just felt doomed. And like there was no way for them to succeed because December's already too late to hire and ramp a bunch of new recruiters. Like by the time you've got the recruiters hired and ramped, you're halfway through the year. And you've missed the H-1B window because you've got to apply for the visas by April and you've missed the new grad window. And so they just felt really doomed. And it should also be said that Facebook's interview process had not significantly evolved or scaled in years. And I think of these kinds of organizational systems and processes, they're not so different from architecture. Like, if you have a pile of code and a set of systems and an infrastructure that is scaling, you know, to your 100,000 visitors a day, and at some point you've got to get to a million visitors a day, like for a while, like maybe going to 200 or 400,000 users, you can just throw more hardware or more cloud instances at it, right? But at some point, you know, on your way to a million users a day instead of 100,000 users a day, you've got to stop and re-architect. You've got to stop and fundamentally rethink, where are the bottlenecks in my system? I've got to move them around because you just cannot keep throwing more hardware at the problem. It becomes outrageously expensive, and in some cases, your software just can't horizontally scale. It hits limits. It hits the wall. So I would say that we had an interviewing and hiring set of processes that were designed for a much smaller hiring target and a much smaller company, a smaller group of potential interviewers, um, a smaller group of recruiters, you know, people who knew each other personally and directly. Um, and we had hit, and we kept trying to scale that horizontally by hiring more recruiters. And we had hit a scale wall where we needed to re-architect how we were even thinking about interviewing. And one of the things that was really obvious about our interview process, just symptomatically, was that we had tons and tons of false negatives. What I mean by that is that we were rejecting lots and lots of engineers who would have, who should have been hired, who were over our hiring bar. And the most visible symptom of that was employee referrals. You'd refer someone to work at Facebook who you had worked with before and you knew was good, and that person wouldn't make it through the phone screen, let alone get a job offer. And there were really widespread complaints. Like, you know, maybe sure, find one person just like, it's your buddy, you think he's good, he's not that good. But the complaints were really widespread enough that it was obvious we had a problem. And it was pretty obvious that that problem actually 
was largely happening at the phone screen stage. And it makes sense. At the on-site stage, there's four interviewers. There's multiple checks and balances. If one person is too harsh, that's okay. There's three other people saying this person really was good. And usually what happens in that situation where it's sort of a split decision is either either you decide you don't trust the interviewer voting no, or like maybe you send them a, a programming test to take home, or you bring them back for some kind of tiebreaker vote. Okay, But in a phone screen, there's only one interviewer. And if they're too harsh, it's a single point of failure. The other problem with phone screens is they're much lower fidelity than an in-person interview, so they're much more prone to wrong answers. Oh, and yet another problem with phone screens is that nobody good wanted to do them. <laughs> so, because at the phone screen stage, you're seeing a much wider variety of candidates, and a lot of them are not very good candidates. And so the people who were senior and good interviewers kind of said, well, I want to reserve my time for the important interviews, that is, the on-site interviews. And so who was doing the phone screens was like people who were junior and new to interviewing and who were much more afraid of bringing through someone bad to the on-site interviewers and looking bad in front of them then they were afraid of missing a hiring target that was really abstract to them because as far as they're concerned, their team grows when new people come out of boot camp, right? Like they felt really attenuated. Like the interviewers were so attenuated from the hiring process that they didn't have any motivation to, to get people hired. And so the overwhelming, and of course there's the MO that all good companies have, which is you should have a high bar, you should be really selective. And so the MO was for a phone screener, when they were uncertain, they would vote no. And that meant that we were voting no all the time on phone screens that should have been yes. And I ran some experiments that proved it. <laughs> so I could go on and on about recruiting. I'm sure you could. But we got a lot more, we got a lot more effective over the course of that year. <laughs> what do you miss most about working at Facebook? Oh, the people. The people were phenomenal. Is there any difference between people and culture? Yeah, yeah. I would distinguish those, yeah. So what do you miss specifically about the people? Like individuals, just friends that you built? or it, Sure, but I think that the collective caliber of the people I got to work with was so high. Like, you know how I said, like, you can just, when you know the price of a release is really cheap, you can just make so many assumptions, you can just live life a different way. You can be fundamentally more productive and higher velocity and make decisions faster and take more risks. When you can count on the fact that every coworker is competent and collaborative, you can go so fast. You can have so much trust. You can feel so safe. And, you know, I showed up at Facebook when it was probably 500 or so people, maybe 600 across engineering and product and design. Um, and when I left, um, I don't know, maybe 3,000 across those functions that were sort of my primary coworkers. I, you know, at those sizes, you can't guarantee that for 100% of people, but man, it was 90 plus percent. And I don't know how to describe how few politics Facebook had in 2010. Like even across 600 people, there should be some selfishness. There should be some agenda. There should be some people Why is saying, that? Why didn't I want to recruit for I mean, my this team. Is, this is consistent with the other interviews I've done, that there was not a Game of Thrones mentality. There were people who were able to prove that they were good engineers, and those people naturally rose to becoming leaders, and those leaders were able to lead other engineers to build products efficiently. It seemed Quite, quite a friendly, non-competitive uh, atmosphere. I'll give you like two classic examples where all managers, like whether they're like, they don't have to be political or, or selfish. They just have to be like, well, <clears throat> I think it's my turn for a new hire, right? Like, you know, like Facebook had this system, you know, where engineers aren't recruited to a particular team. They're recruited into boot camp. Everybody goes into boot camp for the first the month sorting or so. Hat. 
Yeah. <laughs> not exactly, though, because there's not an external sorter. Like, you pick which team you join. And actually, that was true, right? Like, managers would come and recruit out of boot camp. So they didn't recruit from the external world. Like, they would be part of the interviewer pool like everybody else. But new candidates, including your former interns, would go into boot camp. And then you'd go around week four and start talking to different boot campers. If you had openings in your team, you'd go talk to boot campers and, and pitch your opening. And the boot campers would pick. But we had a way of putting our thumb on the scales, which was they were always in any given week. And the number varied with the number of boot campers. But say there would be four teams that Facebook would communicate to the boot campers. These are high pride teams. If you go to one of these four teams, it's most in need. It's crucial to Facebook success. That you know, it's a pivotal moment for that team. You know, these are the teams that we really want you to think hardest about because they are highest priority to the company. And the pitch to boot campers was pick the team that's at the intersection of where you're passionate and where you can have an impact. And so that high price, and there were also bootcamp mentors who worked with each. So during the period of bootcamp, you don't have a boss, but you have what's called a bootcamp mentor, which is an engineer who's sort of shepherding you and helping you, you know, not just get the lay of the land, but like get your build environment up and get tasks assigned to you and do work. And then later on, they can be kind of a little bit of a local guide about teams. And the bootcamp mentors were always pulling for the high pride teams, which mind you may not have been the mentors teams. And so there was this very collegial, you know, I remember picking up the search team and saying, oh, should we go try to get some boot campers? And, and, you know, and the manager of the search team was like, oh, we're not on high price, so we should, we should steer boot campers who come to us to go talk to the high price teams. And I'm like, where does that come from? And there really was this spirit on the engineering side of trying to globally optimize rather than locally. And I think it came from a few things. I think it came from a flat organization. So when everybody is within line of sight of the head of engineering, it's sort of easy to think about having the same value system as, as the person running engineering overall. I can't scale, but it did for a long time. I think it comes actually from the bootcamp hiring system itself. When you accept a job offer with Facebook, you're not accepting a job offer with the search team or the messenger team. You're accepting a job offer with Facebook. So people became citizens of Facebook first and their team second because they made that decision you know, a month later when they were graduating bootcamp. And that was a really big difference from VMware and Trilogy and the other places I'd worked where, you know, when you joined VMware, you were hired by a certain team. And so you very quickly as VMware grew, not so much in the early days, but as VMware grew larger, people developed partisanship for their own team, patriotism, you know, not anything like super political or sharp elbowed, but it was just sort of like, it's like people rooting for their own sports team, right? (laughs) Like, well, I'm in the Bay Area, so I'm going to be a Warriors person. And, oh, you're from Ohio. I guess you like the Cavs. Okay. Like, we can be friends, but I'm rooting for the Warriors, and you're rooting for the Cavs. And, yeah, we're both U.S. citizens. And so it was surprising to me how much being a citizen of Facebook first and the search team second, I think, changed those priorities in a really virtuous way. I don't think that has been able to I – don't, I don't think that's still there. But I think it was there in 2010 – and because largely it was old timers in leadership positions because of the impetus to have homegrown management, you know, I think even in 2013, 2014, almost everybody in a leadership position had joined Facebook in that way and with that mentality. And I think that really kept it going for, you know, that's how we defied gravity for so long. So I guess the nature of boot camp, the nature of of sort of Facebook citizenship first, I think homegrowing the leadership so that the leadership all kind of role modeled that mentality and, and sort of incentive system. I think another factor was that Facebook made transfers relatively easy. And that both relied on people to have a global optimizing perspective. Because transfers are one of those things that's like, it's obviously great for the aggregate, 
but terrible for the team that gives up an sure. engineer, right? Like, like transferring an engineer from here to there is usually net positive for the organization because the engineer's leaving for a reason and they're gonna be happier. And then the team that improves is at least as much better off as the losing team is worse off. So in principle, it should be really great and healthy for engineering organizations to have low barriers to transferring. In practice, the source manager who's giving up an engineer is losing a lot, especially in a world where, <laughs> I'll take it back to the lamp stack, especially in a world where predictability and deadlines are really important. If I lose an engineer right now, I'm gonna miss my deadline. Dude, I can't lose that engineer. So I start being selfish. Right. In a world where I don't have deadlines, where I'm sort of, where it's really fluid, what I'm delivering and when, I'm just going as fast as my team enables me to go, then if I lose an engineer, you know, it's not like my, okay, now I've, I'm doomed, right? I, now I've missed my goals. It's like, well, my goals are gonna be fluid and I'll go try to get somebody. Also, I'll go get somebody at a boot camp. So maybe it takes me two weeks to replace you instead of six months, because I don't have to start with sourcing a new candidate from the outside world. So I think all of those made, and there was a program called Hack-A-Month that I think made transfers easier because it made it kind of a two-step process so the manager losing the engineer didn't feel right away like it was a loss. And so there were a bunch of small things that made transfers easier. And then I think transfers made people better global citizens because now you have this social graph that overlays the org chart, right? And so you have very close ties to people in other teams. You have a lot of trust for them. It breaks down silos because those are your coworkers that you worked side by side with in the last release and now they're over in the other team. So this was a principle I'd observed in Facebook long before mobile was an issue, but I just observed that the transfers meant the social graph was much more dense than the org chart. We had so many more strong ties than the org chart itself and from, from those transfers and, um, and from bootcamp. And so that's why it was one of the tools that I had available to me that I knew I could use later on. And in fact, it was the mobile situation that was perverse where you had this one you know, kind of island in the social graph of, of employees that were new and had only ever had affinity with mobile. I think, again, it was a number of factors had to conspire to make Facebook special in this way, but they really did. Last question. You now work as a venture partner at Zeta Venture Partners. How does your time at Facebook inform your investing? Not as directly as you might imagine, because at Zeta, we only invest in B2B startups. So ones with business to business as a business model. And although we do also invest only in AI for startups. And so there, my, my Facebook experiences definitely are tremendously helpful. I think they've, they've made me I don't have a PhD in artificial intelligence, but the experiences I had at Facebook and the ways I saw us use the technology have made me really conversant with it. So I think that's quite helpful. I think there's almost every VC is trying to invest in AI and a tiny handful of them understand the technology the way I do. Apart from that, you know, I think Facebook really taught me to value iteration and sort of this idea of sort of incrementally developing an idea. And I think that that is incredibly powerful and important for early stage startups. I invest also at the seed stage, so pre-product market fit. And so really having the discipline to strip back your MVP and, and all these terms, you know, agile, MVP, lean, like they're all about out there in the water for Bay Area startups. But, you know, just like Facebook, because it never had the baggage or the legacy or, you know, the early leaders were not kind of tainted with the memory of Waterfall, right? They weren't, they weren't converts from Waterfall. They were born lamp. I think that as hard as founders try to imbibe this idea of MVP, like a lot of time your instinct is still, oh no, I've got to 
perfect this. I've got to get this more right. I've got to do more work and build more before I show it to customers. And so I think that that bias, not just a bias to action, but the bias to get feedback sooner and to course correct and reshape and pivot based on real world feedback was a high art at Facebook. It was the default. If two people disagreed about something, what happened next was not a debate about who was right. It was, well, let's run a test and see. And so the power of external feedback, I don't know, it's, it's really easy to say and give lip service to, but there's, there's something fundamental and ineffable about that. And, and being able to help startups do that, I think, is a gift. Jocelyn, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Whenever someone asks me where they should start if they're trying to learn to program, the answer is easy. Free Code Camp. Free Code Camp is the best place to start your programming journey. You can learn to code for free, and there's a supportive community of millions of coders. There's projects that you can work on. You can get experience by coding for nonprofits. And again, it's entirely free, making it easily the first place that you should start your programming journey as you decide to learn to code. If you want to go to a boot camp from there or take some online courses that cost money, those are options as well. But there's really no downside to starting with Free Code Camp. We've done several shows with Quincy Larson from Free Code Camp, and his true mission is to make coding accessible and free. Free Code Camp is also open source, and there is a nice on-ramp to working on open source if you want to start with Free Code Camp by just taking the courses, and then eventually you can become a open source contributor by working on Free Code Camp itself. So it has that kind of cool meta element to it. Thank you to Free Code Camp for existing and being my go-to source of referrals to uh, get started with your coding career or your coding education. Don't necessarily have to be a career programmer. Thanks, Free Code Camp. Wow.